Thank y'all again very much. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to GBC. Um, really fun to sing some Christmas songs with you. Uh, I just want to let y'all know on the front end of this, uh, we don't preach on specific Christmas passages all through the month of December. We will sing Christmas songs and celebrate the Christmas season, but I, I just don't have that many so- sermons on Christmas. And so um, we're going to be in Joshua 10, and it, it should be a ton of fun. I'm excited to preach this sermon to you, but, uh, and hopefully right at the end we'll tie it back to the incarnation, but it's going to be a rough transition. Um, before we do that, let me make two quick announcements. Um, after this service, we are going to be baptizing four people out in the courtyard. Um, really excited about that. If you can stay for that, uh, please do. It's, it's a great opportunity to hear how God has saved some people in our church and to celebrate that, uh, which is really what baptism is. And, um, and it's a great time just to, to be together as a community. And the other thing we're going to do right after the sermon, and I'm saying this, for my own accountability, because I forgot to have, do this last, last service. We're going to be voting on London McGill as, as an elder. We, he gave his testimony several weeks ago, and, and now we're going to, to vote. And, and we need a real strong vote from the 1045, since nobody in the 9 o'clock said yes. <laughs> uh, but uh, we'll, we'll get the 9 o'clock. We'll graft them in next week, I guess. I'm not sure what we do. Um, Let's pray, and we'll turn our attention to God's Word. Father, we love you so much. You have given us new life in Christ and the security of the gospel, and uh, Father, we feel rooted, and there is joy in that rooting with you. Uh, We celebrate that. We praise you for that. We worship you for the good news of the gospel that you have given us. Uh, Father, I pray that we would see gospel truths in Joshua chapter 10. I, I pray, Father, that we would love you more as a result of this time studying your word. I pray that your spirit would give us conviction over the truths in here and that we would appreciate you more for who you are, not just how we've envisioned you to be. And I pray that our lives would be a little bit different as a result of this time um, studying but also worshiping you. Uh, We love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Brad Brad was drunk, and he was sitting shotgun in my father's Suburban. And the reason he was sitting shotgun in my father's Suburban was because I was in charge of bringing him and a couple of other pledges in our fraternity to a cleanup after a party. But he was undoubtedly drunk. We were in the parking lot of the Castilian. We called it the castle back then, probably today. And, and I was waiting, not in a parking spot, but just in one of the thoroughfares. And it was one o'clock in the morning. And so it wasn't like there was a lot of traffic or anything. And so I'm waiting. We've got the music on. Brad wasn't a particularly close friend. We weren't really talking. We were just listening to music while some of the other pledge brothers of mine were up in the castle getting their, their outfits for cleanup, okay? So, so that's what we're doing. What I don't realize at the time is that there is a car that is trying to pull out of the castle parking lot, and I'm blocking that car in. Well, the driver of the car comes to the passenger side window, and when Brad rolls the window down, he asks me to move the car. Now, he wasn't particularly polite, 
but it wasn't like he was really offensive either. And I, I was of the disposition, yeah, sure, I'll move the car. That's no problem at all. I'm, I can see how that would be annoying. Brad took a different position. Br- Brad, when he drank, loved fight. And, and so Brad starts lipping off to this guy. And before you know it, things escalate in a hurry. Brad's now out of the car, out of my father's Suburban, and he's on the far side of the car, and there's two other guys in the car, so it's kind of three against one. So I, they're just talking at this point. I run around the car, and I get in between Brad. Did I mention that he was drunk? I get, it, I get in between Brad and these three guys, and I'm like, peacemaker, right? Soon to be a pastor, honestly. Didn't know it at the time. And, and I'm like, hey, he's been overserved, and I'm happy to move my car. This is much ado about nothing. Get back in your car. We're going to be fine. Well, as soon as I say we're going to be fine, we're not fine because over my right ear comes a fist who pops this guy that I'm saying, we're going to be fine, right in the nose. All three of them rush past me and they're just whoopity whoop whooping on Brad. Now, I was a wrestler in high school and I was the only sober person in the parking lot. And so I had a little bit of an advantage. And so they're all three on Brad, whoopity whoopity, and I'm grabbing one. I'll take him in a hold, and I'll kind of put him on the ground. And as I'm extolling the virtues of restraint to each individual, the other two are still pummeling Brad. And so I grab another one, and, and you know, hey, you really shouldn't be doing this. You know, like, <laughs> it's not the way of the Lord. And, um, and so uh, the problem is there's three of them. So this goes on for like five minutes, and, I, you know, they're, Brad's getting beaten up, probably deservedly. I'm trying to get all three of them off. I, can't, I just can't do it at once. Well, finally, a couple of the Pledge Brothers come out of the castle, and with their help, we, we kind of, you know, in the melee. We, we get everyone separated, and then we get Brad in the front seat of the Suburban. It's, it's a bench seat, and so there's one guy on the outside, there's Brad, and then there's me in the driver's seat, and we're about to go to our cleanup. And, and I'm like, this is a good result. Like, Nobody got really badly hurt. Brad's going to be a little bit, you know, messed up in the moneymaker. But honestly, he deserves it. And so I'm about to leave. And, and the biggest guy, the guy who was the driver, comes to my driver's side window. And he's like, hey, I want to apologize. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I'm like, it was really Brad's fault. Like, you don't need to apologize. And he's like, no, no, I want to rush your fraternity in the spring. And I'm like, oh, gosh. <laughs> You know, what are we doing here? Um, And he's like, I I want to apologize. I'm like, look, he's not going to remember this tomorrow. Like, he's drunk. And like, don't worry about it. And I won't remember you either because it's dark. And anyway, he kind of bows up on me at that point. And so I'm like, fine, fine. You can apologize. And I I open my car door and, and he is apologizing to Brad, who is sitting to my right, and they're shaking hands like right here, like this. And, and he's like, man, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And Brad's like, no problem, dude, no problem. And Brad lets go of his hand and goes, boom! <laughs> Second sucker punch of the night. And again, it's right across my body. And I'm like, crud! And so I, I grab this guy and I, I shove him out of the car. And when I, I close the door, and I'm locking the door, and I'm starting the engine, he he's no longer as conciliatory as he was. He takes his hand and he hits our window and it shatters. Now it comes in and it cuts my chin, not very deeply. That's a little bit dramatic, but cuts me and there's, there's glass all over and it's my father's suburban. He's sitting right over here and, and like I'm college freshman. I'm like, what am I going to do? This guy hits the window and inexplicably runs off. 
the other guy who's on the other side of Brad, who's helped break up the melee, he looks at me and goes, West, you've got to go get him. I don't know if that was as axiomatically true as I thought of it in the moment, but I was like, oh, yeah, I got to go get him. So I get out of the car and I start running after this guy. Somebody else who was a pledged brother had seen all this happen and he's chasing me. He's out ahead of me. And so I'm running behind. I'm like, where is this dude? And, and my pledged brother, who's a diminutive little guy, he's out in front. He's like, I think he went this way. And so we're running along. I'm like, what? Here comes this guy out of the bushes and he's going to tackle my little diminutive pledged brother. He doesn't see me a bit, and as he runs out, he runs right into me, and I give him my best form tackle. I just pile drive him into the sidewalk, land on top of him, spend a few moments garnering his attention, and then, and then I turn him over, and I'll never forget it. I was like, hey, this wasn't my fight, like, but it was my father's window. You've got to pay for this. And he, at that point, is pretty agreeable, and so we... We end up like, you know, making an agreement that he would pay. But, but, but the whole point was, my, my point was, this is not my fight. Turn with me if you would. <laughs> to Joshua chapter 10, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. As soon as Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were now among them. He feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem sent to Hohan, the king of Hebron, and Piram, the king of Jarmuth, Japhia, the king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. Look, there's a lot going on here. But I promise you, if I'm Joshua, my first thought is, this is not my fight. This is not my fight. The Canaanites are fighting the Gibeonites. The Canaanites are fighting the Gibeonites. There's going to be a lot of ites here. I'm just going to warn you. The Canaanites are fighting the Gibeonites who tricked the Israelites into a covenant like four days ago. I mean, like it is. First of all, the, the treaty or the covenant that the Gibeonites and the Israelites made was a ruse. They, they deceived Israel into a covenant. And now, like four days later, they're being asked to fight on the Gibeonites' behalf, and the Gibeonites lied. And, and that's exactly what's going on. And, and so Joshua's like, this is not my fight. This is not my fight. So why the attack? You, you actually get the reasons for it 
right here in the text because Adonai Zedek, the, the king of Jerusalem, so it's, it's a little small kingdom, knows how dangerous Israel was. And when I say was, I mean was. He knows that Israel was dangerous because Israel has, has already sacked Jericho. The walls came tumbling down. And, and he's also sacked I. And, and he did bad things. Like he killed the kings and then they hung the kings of I and Jericho in trees. And so Adai, Adonai Zadok, the king of Jerusalem, he's scared of Israel. He's scared of Israel because of what Israel was, but now it's worse. Now it's worse because Gibeon, who was also scared of Israel, made a covenant with Israel, and that covenant, would you throw this slide up for me, Scott? That covenant with the Gibeonites effectively, so you see Gilgal, that's kind of to the east side, right above the Dead Sea. If you went up above this map, you'd see the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River connects the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Gilgal is where they're camped. They've, they've conquered Jericho slightly to the west. They've conquered Ai slightly to the west and a little bit north. And now they've gone further west. And, and they have a treaty with all the Gibeonites. And, and that's, that's important. It's important for two reasons. One, it splits the Canaanites. Like it, it's like a beachhead in terms of a military strategy. They, they've split the the Canaanites, the Gibeonites making a treaty splits the Canaanites. The other thing that it does that I, I don't think a lot of us would realize, it captures all the trade routes that would go to Jerusalem. And that's significant. There, there's a north-south trade route that goes through the Gibeonite territory, and there's an east-west trade route, Beth Huron, that, that also goes through. And that's a big problem. And, and so in verse 2, the text says that Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, feared Israel greatly. And, and well, he should. Strategically, this is a big deal. So that takes us now to verses 7 through 9. So Joshua, who's been beckoned by the Gibeonites, who've had a deceptively engaged in covenant for like four days... He's been called to help the Gibeonites. Verse 7, so Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, being all the Canaanite kings who have rallied together against the Gibeonites who you're about to enter into a, a fight with. Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. We'll, we'll stop there. I think there are two important points I'd like to make from th these three verses. Number one, the main point, is that God speaks in verse 8. Now that's significant because most of the book of Joshua has been narrative. So it's just been telling the story. There hasn't been a, a lot of God speaking. But, but here, in a few other places, God actually speaks and here's the point. There's no new points. In, in verse 8, when God speaks, he says the exact same things that he said in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, and he has reiterated those same things a couple of times in the interim. So ultimately, Joshua chapter 10, verse 8, God says, you don't need to fear them. I've given you victory over them. You're going to be okay. Now, he said that 
in chapter one. He has said that over and over again. And therefore he says, so be strong and courageous. But that's been kind of the mantra. The point is this. He reminds Israel of what he's already said. I think that is worth remembering. We sometimes want God to be kind of like little league coaches. I, I don't know if you've ever spent time at a little league field. I, I spent some time at Post Oak Little League um, Memorial Area Sports Association. I, I've spent some time over there. Little league baseball coaches, and some of you are them, are crazy. Okay? Like, to hear little league baseball coaches talk to their little league players and, and speak of things like launch angle and spin rate. And you're kind of like, what are you doing, man? Like, these kids are eight years old. They don't know what an angle is. They certainly don't know what a launch angle is. Like, th like they are looking for their next bag of goldfish and a juice box. They don't get launch angle, okay? Keep it simple. Teach them to swing hard, to swing level, and to keep their eye on the ball, and just let them do it a lot. Later on, there's nothing wrong with launch angle and spin rate. Like, I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm not critiquing all of it. I'm just saying the kids with the juice boxes aren't that into it, okay? We kind of want that from God. We, we want the new, the latest, the, the more technical, the more profound. We, we want to understand supralapsarianism and things like that as if that's really going to matter this Tuesday. And it's not. It's not. Don't look so hard for the new and the novel. Don't look so hard for the new and the novel that you forget the true and the timeless. My best advice, whether you've been walking with Christ for six months or 60 years, my very best advice is root yourself, anchor yourself in the timeless foundational truths of the gospel. I promise your life is more impacted not by the next profound thing that you will learn so that you can quote it back and sound sophisticated. It's not going to help you that much. The best thing that you can learn is the foundational truths and, and not just learn them and, and put them back here in the recesses of your brain. It, it's that you would learn them and that you would walk into work, walk into school, walk onto the sports field, walk wherever you're going with those truths at the forefront of your mind so that you can respond to whatever the world brings you in a place of security and joy. Things like God is always benevolent. He is always good. He is always omnipotent, all-powerful. Like those are, omnipotence a big word. It's a simple concept. God is good and God is all-powerful and God is with you. God has sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for you that by his work on the cross, he took the wrath that he had against your sin, he put it on Jesus Christ so that he, in forgiveness, could give you unconditional love because his wrath has been satisfied. Those are foundational gospel truths. The death that we deserved, Jesus took so that we could receive unconditional love, and the grace that we receive by Jesus' finished work is sufficient to cover the worst sin that you have done, are doing, or will do. That is a foundational gospel truth. It doesn't excuse you into more sin. It enables you to resist sin because of the security of the gospel. So those are 
foundational truth. And you can look for more profundity. And I don't know that they will have as much impact as just remembering the old stuff. God speaks. And he doesn't give anything new. He reminds us of the old ways, of the old truths, of the old promises. After God reminds Israel of his promise to them, Israel collectively says, oh, we're secure. That means we can all go poolside, order tropical drinks with little pink umbrellas, sit back and chill because God's got everything. Now, is that what happened? It's not what happened at all. Look at verse 9. Right after God says, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Verse 9. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. You might be asking yourself, how far is Gilgal from Gibeon? Because that's where all these bad kings have surrounded the Gibeonites. How far did Joshua and the men of valor, the fighting men of Israel, how far did they march in that one night, having been assured that God was going to win? 22 miles. 22 miles is not that far. It's like here to Katy. But they didn't have cars. They marched a long way overnight to gain surprise attack advantage over the Canaanite kings. And here's my point. God's sovereignty doesn't excuse us. God's sovereignty doesn't excuse us. It energizes. It doesn't excuse us to passivity. It actually enables our proactive participation in his kingdom purposes. And that's what you need to understand because there's plenty of people who are Calvinists. And I'm a Calvinist, okay? Like, if you're wondering, I'm a Calvinist. But there's plenty of people in Calvinists who have mistakenly said, God is sovereign, therefore I'm off the hook. God is sovereign, therefore what I do doesn't matter because God's going to accomplish what God is going to accomplish. Look, God is going to accomplish what God's going to accomplish, but he invites us into participation. And the security that we have knowing his unconditional love doesn't excuse us to passivity. It enables us to go be proactive, to take some risks because we can succeed and we can fail. And I don't think God's presence with us guarantees that we'll succeed. But when we fail, he's still with us. When we fail, he still loves us just as much as he would have loved us if we had succeeded. You can't build on perfect and he loves us perfectly. God cannot love you in Christ any more or any less than he already does. And that enables us to take some risks. Look, I, I think this is foundational. Uh, 20 years ago, I was 34 years old and I'd done okay in my job as the pastor of a, a little church in a little town in Northern California. And I started thinking about planting a church in Houston. Mostly I was trying to get a job as a pastor in Houston, but the other church I applied to said no. And so I was like, maybe God's calling me to church planting. And it was scary. It was scary because I'm 34. I've got two kids. I've got another kid on the way. And I'm wrestling with God because I've got all these fears and I've got all these insecurities. I'm like, look, I'm doing fine in this smaller town. Does what I'm preaching about disciple making play in the big city? And I'm wrestling with God in that moment. And ultimately, I get to this point where, where I think to myself, and I think God gave me this thought, I could fail in this endeavor 
And God is still sovereign over my family. He still loves me unconditionally. And he is still primarily the primary provider for me and the people I've been giving, given stewardship over. And that's what enabled me to take a risk and to plant a church. What is that for you right now? What, what is the thing that you're like, I'd love to try this, but man, I'm scared because I could fail. And ugh. Like, what is that? And, and should the old gospel truths be informing your decision-making? I'm not saying being an idiot. I'm just saying if, if insecurity is holding you back, know that you're secure in Christ. And then make a decision based on the security that you have, not the insecurity that you have. What is that for you? Maybe it's starting a Bible study at the office. Maybe, maybe it's going to be a, a missionary in, in some other country. Like it, it could be any number of things, but, but what is it for you? And are you, are you allowing the security of the gospel to inform how you think, how you pray, how you seek whatever is next? Something to think about. Look at chapter 10, verses, let's see, 10 through 15. And the Lord, through them, them being the Canaanite kings, also called the Amorite kings, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. Get very insecure about pronunciations. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord got, gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajadon, Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? Which is a great question that I can't answer because we don't know where the book of Joshar is. Sorry. Continuing. The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, Joshua, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. Well, so there are two big questions from these six verses. One is the one you want to ask, and one question is the question that the author wants you to ask, and they're different. So you want to ask one question, and the author of this text wants you to ask one question, but they're different. We're going to start with the question you want asked. What's the deal with the long day? That, that's the question that, that we kind of gravitate to. What's the deal with the extra long day? A couple of options. Could have been 
that God is extending the night. I, I get that it looks like he's extending the day. I promise you in the, the Hebrew, it's, it's a little bit more debatable. Uh, it says in verse 12, the sun is at Gibeon and, and the moon is at Ajalon. That seems to indicate that he wants the night to continue. He did this surprise attack at night and, and if the sun and the moon are where he says, that means the sun is in the east and the moon is in the west and, and that means it's like almost sunrise. Could be. Maybe after a 22-mile hike to get there overnight, he doesn't want to deal with the heat. Maybe. I don't know. Could be that God is extending the day. Could be that God is extending the day. Maybe they're in this war on a, Sat or on a Friday, and they can't fight on the Sabbath. And so <laughs> Joshua's saying, make Friday longer, because we got to stop fighting on Saturday, and they gain strategic advantage if, if we can't fight them. Maybe. Maybe it's a heat deal. I, like, I don't know. Could be that God was using a solar eclipse to provide advantage for Israel. Again, this would probably be a heat argument. Like, if, if the sun is not beating down on them, it is, it is cooler in the desert. Maybe they need that advantage again because they've chased them 20 miles at this point. So that's 22 miles getting to Gibeon. 20 miles. I mean, it's a long time to chase people. Could be. I don't know. It, Hebrew's really hard. It's hard to know exactly what's going on. Here's what I do know. If, if you've ever heard anything preached on this story, you might have heard that there was a NASA computer that did calculations of you know, the celestials, and, and they've, they've proven that there was one day, 1,200 years you know, B.C., you know, that this happened. It's an urban myth. Man, I wish it was true. That would be so fun to preach, which is why that urban myth, I mean, like, pastors have to read that story, and they've got to say, I don't care if it's true, that'll preach. But I looked it up. It's an urban myth. So it's a bummer. That, that would be fun to preach. It's just not true. Here's what I do know about this. I don't know if it was extending the night, extending the day, I don't know if it was a solar eclipse, if it was slowing down the Earth's rotation. I don't know any of that. Here's what I know. God provided critical advantage to Israel by doing a miracle. That's what I know. That's really all we need to know. God provided critical advantage for Israel by his miraculous intervention. Which leads us actually to the next question. Probably some ways answers the next question. The question that the author wants you to ask, by the way. He's not so concerned with how the miracle happened. Here's what he's concerned with. Who gets the credit for this victory? Israel is now defeated a consortium of five kings, all powerful kings. Who gets the credit? Who gets the credit? Look at verse 10 with me. And the Lord, through them, the alliance of evil, five kings, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, that's that trade route, east-west trade route I talked about, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. So there's four verbs in verse 10. 
threw, struck, chased, and struck again. Who's doing what? Pretty clear in the English translation, and I love the English translation. The ESV is great. It's pretty clear here that it was God who threw, but if you look at the English translation, it looks like Israel struck, chased, and struck again. Here's the problem. There's no subject change between the first verb and the second, third, and fourth verb. Now, Hebrew is hard, but one of the great things about Hebrew is when there is a subject change, it's normally really emphatic. It's pretty easy to see. There's not a subject change. So the one who did the first verb did the second, third, and fourth verb. And in fact, the old historic Hebrew translation has God doing all four verbs. It was God who threw the Canaanites into a panic. It was God who struck them. It was God who chased them. And it was God who struck them again. This is totally confirmed in verse 11. When when in verse 11, Yahweh, and it's very emphatic that it is Yahweh who threw down the hailstones, killing more than all the Israelites killed combined. How do you feel about that? How does, how does the idea of God as the warrior who is fighting, who is striking people down, how does that sit with you? Some of you probably love it. Most of you probably struggle a little bit with that. I get it. I, I struggle a little bit with it too, if I'm being honest. Here's where I think the struggle comes from. We've grown up with a thin veneer of civility in this culture that makes us want a genteel God. It's, it's what we want. We want gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You know, like, hey, can't we all get along? Hey, guys, come on, let's be nice. We, in fact, often mistake the kingdom of God for the kingdom of politeness or the kingdom of niceness. This thin veneer of civility comes off quick when we realize that the world and the people of this world are capable of horrific evil. Like, that's that's when you want God to fight, not just on behalf of his kids, but for his glory, for his justice, for his righteousness. See, that's actually pretty important when you understand that this world is pretty bad. When we understand mankind's capacity for evil, a God who is infinitely loving is therefore willing to fight against injustice for righteousness and for his redeemed. It's actually really, really important. And by the way, don't make the pop Christian mistake of thinking the God in the Old Testament was, was righteous and all about justice and was kind of hammering people and, and he somehow went through puberty or something in the New Testament and, and he, he became like this like gentle Santa Claus type person because that's wrong. The greatest demonstrations of his 
justice and his righteousness and his judgment are found in the New Testament, not the Old Testament. I give you the cross where God's hatred of sin is poured out on Jesus, the innocent one, so that we would understand how seriously God takes sin. It's also incredibly gracious that it's poured out on someone not named West or whoever you are. But that is a testament to God's righteousness. And by the way, his judgment, the reason you avoid the book of Revelation is because you don't like the justice of God being poured out on a sinful world. People who are persecuted love the book of Revelation. People who have suffered injustice love the book of Revelation. It's very important to them. If, if you're in a community group right now and you've been reading through the book of James, James talks about the judgment of God coming and that encourages the saints of God who have been persecuted in Jerusalem and have now been scattered. You've read that. That was true. You might not feel it today. That doesn't mean it's not true today. There are people in this world who love the idea that God is a God of justice. I love that he's a God of mercy and forgiveness. I love that he sent Jesus that we might escape his judgment and might know his mercy. But I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I love that he's a God of justice. A few weeks ago, Fritz Maxwell and Matt Klinger and I went up to Kansas and we, we were going bow hunting. And, and we had the honor of sharing a, a deer camp with, with a new friend, it's, and his name is Snoop. Now, Snoop's misleading, okay? I'm going to tell you that right now. You think of Snoop and you like, think dog, and this is, <laughs> we were not sharing camp with Snoop Dog. We were, his name, his, his given name was, was Mike. His, his mom did not name him Snoop. That's important to know. His call sign was Snoopy, and so all his friends called him Snoop. Snoop's 71 years old, I think, I think 71, yeah, 71 years old, fit as a fiddle, gracious, godly, he, you want to be discipled by Snoop Snowden. Like he, he's, he's, I want to be discipled by Snoop Snowden. This guy was wonderful. Spent 29 years serving as a military aviator. He, he flew helicopters, like seven different types of helicopters. He, he rose as a leader through the military ranks. He, he, was, he was very honored. He, really a great guy, very humble guy. He had to dig it out of him. His son, his son is a brigade commander, let me, yeah, no, a battalion commander for a special forces unit that is currently in the Middle East. And their mission is, you know, he's the, the battalion commander, but, but the group's mission is to rescue civilian hostages from Hamas. I don't want to get into the politics of this right now, I think it's hard to argue that rescuing civilian hostages from Hamas is anything but a really good thing. And I got to see a picture of Snoop's son. And he's, he's in his helmet, his flight suit, and, and like close-up picture. I'd show it now, but he's special forces. I didn't feel like I should. I'm just telling you, I know he's gracious. I know he's godly you're glad he's on your team. Like, this guy looked serious. I, if I met him in a dark alley, 
I lose. (laughs) And I thought to myself, you know what? This guy is capable. His, His capabilities provide us security that enable us to live freely. That's what this guy does. Now, does this guy's capabilities have limits? The answer is yes. He's finite. He's finite. So he he might be way more capable than me or you, but his capabilities are finite. And and nonetheless, he provides me with security so that I can live in freedom. That's what the son of Snoop does as the battalion commander of this special forces unit, rescuing hostages from terrorists. Here's the deal that struck me this week. God's willingness to fight on our behalf is similar to Snoop's son, except for the fact that his abilities, his capabilities are infinite, while Snoop's son, though extensive, are finite. So God's abilities to fight on our behalf should make us more secure than any other man's because his capabilities are infinite and man's capabilities are finite. And so however much you appreciate Snoop's son, you should appreciate God because he says he fights for us. He says he fights for his glory. He says he fights for his justice. He says he fights for his righteousness. But he also fights for his children. And you might not think you need it, This world says otherwise. And by the way, his infinite abilities speak to his sovereignty, and his sovereignty doesn't excuse our passivity. It enables our proactive participation in the things that we know that God is fighting for. So when we see injustice, we fight against it. When we see sin, we fight against it. Because God is sovereign, because God has gone before us, because God fights, we fight with him, just like Israel. And I promise you, this matters. And and how do you tie this to Christmas? I'll tell you exactly how you tie it to Christmas. Jesus is born in a manger, not as an isolated event, but so that he might grow up and fight against the forces of darkness, be ultimately crucified by dark forces that he might conquer sin and death for us. So the nativity scene and all this Christmas stuff, you recognize in that that Jesus is fighting for us. He is fighting for us. And that gives us security and peace and hope and joy and all the things we celebrate in Christmas. But it also enables us to get after it and to fight with God for his good kingdom purposes. And anything less is a denial of his intent in the incarnation. Let's pray. Father, help us, dear God, to be men and women so secure in the gospel 
that, that we would be willing to take risks, that we would be willing to fight, that we would be willing to sacrifice. Father, I pray that we would do it in ways that bring you glory. Fighting is not bad if it is for it, the right purposes and against the wrong things. Father, help us. Help us to be men and women who follow you as you fight. And I pray that we in humility, in security, and in the joy of our salvation would delight to be on your team. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.